born under law to redeem those under law. Galatians 4, 4 5. On service today, that's uh, now, on evening service, men's Bible study, 10 a.m. at the clouds. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. We'll be hosting the SBBA men's retreat, and that's January the 26th, so just about a month. And those willing to uh, house and see George, and uh, we have a place for him. That'd be great. SGBA Winter Blast. I see that coming. Laura's working on that. And here, second through fourth. So put that on your calendar. You'll see the poster on the house board for that. Tidy envelopes again uh, are here. If you haven't got yours, sign up for those. Next Sunday, no eating service as well. <clears throat> and thanks to all who helped at the concert. have a greeting card, Christmas card, from the Henrys. Dear friends of Thornville, may the Lord bring overflowing peace to your home and everlasting joy to your heart. We are so thankful for each one of you as we reflect back on 2017. Thank you for your prayer and faithful financial support this past year. May you all have a Merry Christmas and experience God. God's abundant blessing in the new year. In Christian love, Stephen Robin. We, I don't know if you all got it or not, but we got an update on their health. Maybe Laura can help me with that. It was yesterday or day before. Yeah. Um, Steve uh, had a good report from his doctor. Uh, let me back up. Steve was diagnosed just a few months ago with an aggressive form of prostate cancer. Um, and had a surgery, had a, a fairly good report after the surgery, but they're recommending that he does radiation. Uh, of, um, so he's kind of in that, this sounds like he's in the decision-making process on that. He's meeting with his oncologist. He's meeting with his oncologist, so it looks like, um, it's, that's a little unusual for prostate cancer, but he looks like he'll probably be doing some radiation. And Robin had a not-so-great report. Uh, let me see if I can get this right from my memory, her tumors, she had a CAT scan, her tumors have gotten slightly larger, but her oncologist said it's typical that they would get slightly larger before they begin to shrink. So he's not worried, let's say it that way. So her, she'll, she'll be having continuing treatment. Is that pretty much the gist? Yes. Okay. So all things considered, they're doing well. Them in prayer uh, regarding their health. And then I also have an obituary to read on uh, Chaplain Carl and Paul. Chaplain Paul served in the military for almost three decades, ministering to the soldiers of the United States Army. He served in the National Guard Reserves and Active Duty Army. He distinguished himself through stellar leadership, professionalism, and dedication to pastoral ministry with deep respect and sincere, sincere concern for the soldiers and their families. He was the deputy chaplain of 4003D Garrison Support Unit from 2000 to 2004. In June 2004 to September 2004, 
sign as senior chaplain of 4003D GSU. One of the highlights of his career was while he was an Army National Guard chaplain, he deployed to Munich, Germany in 1996, where he served as senior chaplain for NATO, which was an undisclosed operation during his time. He ministered to the U.S. soldiers and foreign troops. Chaplain Hall recently retired after 27 years of pastoral care and ministry to our veterans. He was a chaplain with the Central Texas Veterans Healthcare System at both the Temple and Waco Medical Center. He was preceded in death by his father, mother, and brother. Angie Hall Jr. left to cherish his memories uh, are his loving wife of 37 years. Joyce Hall, his son Carl Hall Jr., daughter Alicia Hall, grandson Malachi, brothers Bradley and Derek Hall of Dayton, sister Elaine Hall, Turner, and several nieces and nephews and cousins. So, okay, anything that I've missed, forgotten? Our scripture for meditation this morning is found in John's Gospel, chapter 14, read 15 through 20.
might change to him later. It's not in your bulletin, but it's in mine. I changed that to the one of the few minutes. <laughs> Can I get Lydia? Let me get you next time. Okay, she just said that.
also some parts of Galatians chapter 4. In our short message series on the coming of Christ, concerning the coming king, and just how important the book of Malachi is in terms of its position as the last prophecy of the Old Testament dispensation before the 400 years of silence which was ended with the arrival of John the Baptist. Last week we studied John's ministry as the herald of the king. Malachi also prophesied him using the term messenger and calling him the Elijah who would return to Israel, both of which terms were applied to John the Baptist, firstly by the angel of God who announced his birth to his father, Zechariah, and then by Zechariah himself in his song of praise, and you can read, it, read that song in Luke chapter 1. If any doubt remains, Jesus himself referred <clears throat> to John as the messenger, and as the fulfillment of promise that Elijah would come. His life and ministry was filled with the Holy Spirit at birth. John was full of wisdom, the wisdom of God, and of an upcoming promising way. He preached a gospel of repentance of sins in a very, very uh, stringent way. He was not a city dweller. He lived in the desert. And yet we find that the people flocked to him to hear his message. In other words, the people went out into the desert to hear John. And when the people thought of him as possibly being the Messiah, he set them straight in a hurry and pointed them to the coming king, the one who would baptize people's hearts with the Holy Spirit. We drew out a number of lessons. Number one, as a king, Jesus had his arrival announced by a herald, which was usually the case with kings. We learned that we are heralds of the second coming of Christ. It's coming again. We herald that news. Secondly, the message of our appeal to sinners is in the form of a warning. It is a call, like John's, to repentance. We need to get ready for the coming of Christ. How do we get ready? We repent of our sins. This is how men prepare for the coming of God. Well, today we turn our attention to the arrival of the king. And I have chosen a more mm, theological rather than an historical passage as our text for this morning. You can probably almost quote the accounts of Jesus' birth from Matthew chapter uh, 1 and 2 and so on. Or from Luke's gospel because these are very familiar texts and used often at Christmas time. But I've chosen Galatians 4 verse 4 which couches the arrival of King Jesus within its redemptive significance. Why did he come? What did he accomplish as he came? Let us seek the Lord's intervention 
as we study. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It's only in the word of God that we learn of Christ and your marvelous work through him. That's why we study the Bible. This is not meaningless time spent. It's important because it's the book of God. If we want to know anything about God, if we want to know anything about salvation, if we want to know anything about how we're going to meet God in peace, this is the book that tells us. And it tells us about the Savior who is Jesus Christ. We need to know him if we're going to meet you in peace. Because there's another side to God. There's the side of judgment. Shall we meet you in judgment or shall we meet you in peace? We prefer the latter. Send your spirit to teach us the truth in Christ's name. Amen. We're looking today at the arrival of the king, and I'm referring to Christ. And as I indicated in the prayer time, we've chosen an unusual passage to do that, Galatians 4, verse 4. But before looking directly at the truths of that verse, you should know something of the error which Paul addressed in the book of Galatians. By the way, Galatia does not refer to any one singular church, but rather to the Roman province of Galatia, which was to the northeast of Palestine, now known today as modern Turkey, same area. In this geographical area, Paul founded a number of churches, four churches, the Church of Antioch, the Church of Lystra, the Church of Iconium, and the Church of Derbe. And in these newly found churches, certain men, Judaizers they were called, that is Jewish Christians, they came and taught, in essence, that Paul had not given them the full gospel, you know, something was missing. He had deleted the necessary obedience to the ceremonial law of Moses, especially uh, the rite of circumcision. So to put it succinctly, they taught, yes, that faith in Christ was good, it, it was necessary, but in addition to faith in Jesus' redemptive work, one had to become Jewish to some degree. What degree? Well, not in offering animal sacrifices in the temple. No, they didn't teach that. But in observing the various laws of diet, ritual, feast days, Sabbath restrictions, and in particular what I already mentioned, the rite of circumcision. Now, this was not, it was not a total denial of the necessity of the atoning work of Christ. The Judaizers were willing to acknowledge Christ's death as the alone way of redemption for sins. But as to how one lived the Christian life, as to how to live in a holy way that pleases God, even um, how to be fully justified before God. They taught the necessity of obeying the ceremonial law of Moses. And so their message was this. Yes, faith in Christ. But 
faith in Christ plus obedience to the law, that equals being a Christian. That's what they taught. Well, <laughs> this did not sit well with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul rightly saw this as a perversion of the gospel, and he says so in this same book, Galatians 1, verse 7 and 8. He says, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let him, let that one be eternally condemned. I'm going to say it very harsh. Let them be damned to hell. Wow. These are some of the strongest words you're going to find in the New Testament. And they clue us in to the importance of not messing with the gospel of grace in any way. To add anything to Christ is to distort Christ. I mean, just think about that. If something's perfect and you try to add something to it, haven't you destroyed its perfection? And that's what's going on. To say that in addition to faith in Christ, must, one must do some other things to be justified before God and forgiven by God is to denigrate the work of Christ. To say that obedience to the law is a mark of Christianity and Christian living is to distort true holiness which comes from within by the work of Christ. Holy Spirit. Sometimes that's not enough for people. They got to figure out something they can do that will somehow have merit before God. Paul then he wrote this letter to the churches of Galatia to get them back on track, to correct the error which the Judaizers had sown among them, and to warn them if they proceeded down that course of accepting obedience to the law as that which made them righteous in God's eyes. Instead, they would be returning, look at verse 9, to those weak and miserable principles and would be enslaved by them all over again. Even more serious, chapter 5, look at verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace. Wow. Do we want to fall from grace? Paul says, well, you're teetering on that very point. It's, salvation is all of grace, but you want to add to grace some little works of your own, some little obediences of your own. And that denigrates Christ. Do you know that this is a, there's a bleed over here because this is relevant as our own day. People, unbelievers, still believe that being a Christian means that one has to obey the Ten Commandments in order to please God and to be given an entrance into heaven. They think that being good, here it is, is how a person is saved. But the Bible teaches there is none good but God. Luke 18 verse 19. 
and that among men there is no one who does good, not even one, Romans 3, verse 12. Well, that's rather demoralizing. But this is why it is essential to believe that Jesus was more than just a good man. If he's not God in the flesh, as he claimed to be and proved by his miracles, you can read about it in John 10, verse 50, verse 25 and following. If he's not that, then he comes under the same indictment of God's word to mankind universally, which is, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, verse 23. So we're left with this conclusion, Galatians 3, verse 26 and following. You're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed. Then you're a Jew. And heirs of God according to the promise. Chapter 4, verse 1, what I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. Now in these verses, Paul is explaining where we were as people of the world, and how we got to be the people of God. And he uses the illustration of an heir to a large estate. Picture a child who is an heir of a very, very rich father and his father's fortune. As long as the heir is a child, He's under certain restrictions. It doesn't matter that he's an heir. He's still under certain restrictions. He is still treated as a slave or servant. In this sense, verse 2, he's subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. I think we can relate to this in our modern world. Still goes on today. You might all remember Patty Hearst, heir of the huge Hearst fortune, amassed by her father in the publishing business. But it did not come into control for her in any kind of unrestricted, unrestricted use until she was age 21. Remember, she got into the wrong crowd. She got in trouble with the law as part of her attempts to acquire the money she wanted dad's bucks a lot sooner. <laughs> but till her 21st birthday, her vast fortune was held in trust by trustees, by guardians. See, what's the point? The point is that there's something about youth in terms of immaturity and know-how that requires they be under guardians. And we hope that with the coming of age, there will also be coming of maturity, a sense of responsibility to be able to handle such large sums of money. 
to be able to handle the power that goes with large sums of money. So utilizing this principle, Paul applies it to the spiritual riches of all of God's children and the things that we are destined to inherit in time. Look at verse 3. So also, when we were children, says Paul, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. To what is he referring? Well, Paul considers us who have come to know Christ as Redeemer. He's considering us in our infant, child state, when we were under the guardianship and the rule of other trustees, which he calls the basic principles of the world. Well, what are they? He answers in Colossians 2, verse 20 and following. Since you died with Christ, and that's by identifying with his death at Calvary for your sins, you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world. Why, as though you still belong to it, the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use. Because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body. Think of the ascetic practices of many religions. But, but, says Paul, they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, observing these things won't make you holy before God. Not then, not ever. So, the basic principles of the world, by them, Paul means anything invented by men as a means 